Hello and welcome to Writing a Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing a Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Joseph Dandran. And if you don't know Joseph, you probably should. But instead of me reading his bio, why don't I let him introduce himself? My name's uh, Joseph Dandran. Um, I come from Kwantlen First Nation. I'm a poet, playwright, storyteller, now a screenwriter. Um, yeah, um, father of three, fisherman. When I asked Joseph if he could be a character in any novel, children's book, poem, movie, TV show, who he would be and why, he immediately thought of a character from one of his favorite movies from when he was a kid. Here's what he had to say. My favorite movie is, um, I don't know if I talked about this before, uh, as a kid was um, uh, Papillon. I'd, uh, yeah, I'd like to be Papillon in the movie Papillon. Why Papillon? I don't know. I just see it's such a good story about survival. And um, yeah, I just always liked that film. The East Side of It All is a finalist for the 2021 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Joseph starts our episode with a reading of a new poem. St. Mary's number four. 1955, down by the river, huh and muck fishing. Quiet Sunday afternoon, all the chores have been finished. Catholics are in the field searching for lovely flowers to pick to smell, to taste. Hooks the first one, her little arms holding on, holding, pulling, pulling. The fish snaps up into the air and looks around, its eyes staring right at her. Little Indian girl, little fisherman, little gift from above. Her hands grasp the pole, her eyes widen, her breath quickens, flowers picked out of earth, snapped at the stem. Noses sniffing the air, searching for the scent of God, all his creations, now devoured by humans, flowers, fish, little Indians with crosses around their necks, flowers, lovely flowers, fish. It jumps once more and snaps the line, going down to the bottom, down where the water is calm. It rests, swallows the fat worm. Unaware of the creation, unaware. Mup gets a nibble, the hairs on his arm stand up. Catholics singing in the fields, songs about glory and salvation. Mup dances the worm, singing his song beneath his breath, soft enough so the nuns do not hear him. He shuffles his feet, trying to remember his dance. Worm dances beneath the water, the salmon spots it swims towards it, hunger, dance, song, shuffling the bare brown feet, fields of flowers, fields of salvation, river, water. Fish takes the worm, fields of song, worm becomes a hook. The salmon snaps its head to the left and then to the right. Hook goes deeper, mutt pulls, his little Indian arms pulling, his song getting louder. 
his feet quicken into the beat of the drum inside his head. He pulls, he sings, he shuffles his feet like the old days, like the days back home. He pulls the fish out of the water and he takes a small club-like branch and snaps the fish on top of the head twice. Fish stops. Mutt pulls the hook and what is left of the worm out of the fish's mouth. Drops it back into the river. Fields of flowers, songs of glory and salvation. Two Indian kids on the river's edge. 1955. Worms on hooks. Songs, drum, paint, memories of home, silently breathing songs of glory. In your introduction, you talked about being a fisherman. And uh, Mm. in the poem you read, there was those beautiful images as well. And I can see a fish on your hat as we're talking. Mm -hmm. Um, I wondered if you could talk about the role of fishing and the river in, in this book. Uh, in this book, yeah, uh, in all my writing, um, I live right by the river, um, so I see it every day. That's why it's there, and um, I'm a fisherman, but this year is going to be the worst year of fishing we have ever seen. Yeah, I, we haven't been in the water yet to catch our first fish. Um, I love fishing. Um, I remember being a little kid with my grandfather. We'd get up at 6 a.m. and uh get in his boat and go down and check his net and pull the fish out. And in the east side of it all, um, there's fishing. Yeah, there's the Sturgeon's Lover is one of my favorite poems. That I, I think I, yeah, it's one of my favorite poems. And I find all creation can be turned into poetry. And especially um, what I experience on the river and fishing, I, I store those images and then I'll use them later on and either in a book of poetry or in a new play. Yeah. I I was really taken by the the Sturgeon's Lover and just the images of the Sturgeon in the book. And and I actually would love to hear more about that poem and, and mm-hmm. what, you know, what it is about that story that really drew you in. I think... Um, a sturgeon have really big lips. I don't, have you ever seen one? They're, yeah. yeah. And they, they're almost like vacuum cleaners on the river. And um, <clears throat> they're, they're in trouble for years. We, we stopped fishing them uh, decades ago because their numbers were so low. But they're doing well now. Yeah. And my uncles used to smoke them. They're really good uh, smoke fish. It's a white meat. So, yeah. And then, yeah, I just have this this whole idea of how, how connected we're so close to them that uh, it was easy to create a story of of a man, a fisherman, who who had a choice um, to uh, be in love with a sturgeon, and um, but knowing knowing all along that one day she might feed on him, which she does in in that poem, um, almost like this this idea of the circle of of fish, basically their life cycle, and that when I catch them in my net, though they come up white belly. And I always think I have a body. It's like, yeah. And they're so big too. Yeah. It's, so the big ones are really smart and they're not as, they've been worn down because they've been alive for uh, hundreds of years. And, but the small ones are real sharp and they're more, yeah, you got to take your time and put on a pair of gloves and try not to rip your net up too much. Is, is there a place for you with your poems where, um, and a story has existed and you're kind of adding on to them in your own way? 
Um, no, uh, because our elders were like my mom was five when she was put on a train in Fort Langley and sent to residential school. She went to Cooper Island and then to St. Mary's in Mission. Uh, so everything was lost. Our elders, yeah, they lost all their stories. And I don't, there's no one really in my community that I can go to for those old, old stories. But I have friends who live further up river and when they were young boys, they sat with their elders and listened to stories. So I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't take their stories. I would usually take characters out of them. Like I, I write about Sasquatch a lot. So I use that. And then we teach our kids that each of us has a gift. And um, some of my same friends up river have the gift of they can hear songs. They, they just start singing them. And what I like to think my gift is, is that stories are somehow given to me because I have no idea where any of these come from. And I just, I just write them and uh, hopefully 10,000 years from now, they'll still be here. Um, but yeah, they're all totally created by me. And, and I don't question where they come from. I just accept them and yeah, put them down on page. And, yeah. It was, it was interesting in reading the book too, because well, of course it's, there's, you're reading the words on the page and I've heard you read aloud so many times now that, um, it was interesting in, in how we understand story, like story on the page and of course mm -hmm. oral story and then and song. And how do you interpret all that when you're working on on a written poem? How do you bring that together in your work? Yeah, I think uh, I'm working on a new book of poems right now. I'm like, I think I'm about 60 pages in. Um, I just, I start with a title and then I may have maybe an image that I, was shown or something or and then I'll start with that and and then I just keep writing and writing and writing and um, and then as I'm writing the rhythm I can feel the rhythms of what I'm trying to say coming out and so that's that kind of eases me into the next line into the next image and then uh, right now my style is um, I'll write three paragraphs per poem so the first paragraph will be a scene and a moment and a story of somewhat then the second one may, I might blend into it, but it, it usually they're to, two do, totally different ideas and images, uh, stories. And then the third paragraph too um, might tie it all in, or it might be just something random uh, image. But I know, I know my rhythms now. I, I, I think that's real important for writers is knowing your rhythms. And, and so when I write, I, I write like how I would read it out loud and that's gotten me into trouble with publishers because of the, I use the word and a lot, but it's, for me, it's a breath. I take a breath and yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I just put on some tunes and just, I'm up at 5am every day and I'll write one poem a day. Yeah. I, I think I read somewhere that you, when you work on a collection, you kind of, it comes to you in one in one movement, like you're, you kind of write from beginning to end. Is that how that works for you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be working on like right now I'm new book of poems and <clears throat> I'm also writing a screenplay, but I was up, I was up for the Griffin award um, and I didn't win. So I was depressed for like, I was like, I quit writing for like two days, but I couldn't stop myself. I had to, yeah, I had to keep writing. So I was like, yeah, you're, you can't stop. Um, yeah, that was quite a rush, man, that Griffin Award, because it was like I had already spent the money in my head. And, you know, I was living <laughs> I was living in Mexico and I had a new boat. <clears throat> and then but 
and then like this award too, I, I was up for it last year too. And um, I don't seem to win awards. I'm always the bridesmaid and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll be on a, um, I, I know when they're done. So I, I, I know like people talk about writer's block and that I, I don't really have writer's block. I, I just know um, to stop because I'm, I can feel myself trying too hard or trying to push it too much. And I'll know when a book is done. Um, books of poetry usually up to like a hundred pages or whatever. And uh, same with manuscripts or short stories. Um, and then uh, as I'm coming to the end of a project, <clears throat> I'm already thinking about the next one. So this book of poetry will end. And then uh, I'm not sure what I'm, I think I need a new stage play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned uh, the characters in your poems, and uh, you've, you mentioned the Sasquatch, and we've talked about the sturgeon. And I, I'm curious how much of yourself you you include in... Do you become a character in the poems as well, or are you careful about navigating how much of yourself to include? Oh, no, for sure. I'm in there. Yeah. I, I like to hide things and, you know, be metaphorical and all that stuff. But no, everything uh, is about me and my life and my emotions and my memories and um, <clears throat> um, and yet able to like see scenes, like see people downtown East side and imagine them and, um, and speak for them and uh, yeah, stuff like that. And then go back into a new piece, which about me and uh, could be about my struggle with like, I don't really like poetry readings I like them now because Zoom, because people can't throw stuff at me. But like live readings that I find very, they're scary sometimes when you do live readings. Yeah, there's always somebody that wants you, wants a piece of you, and just wants reading poetry. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something I always find. I write nonfiction, so I'm always writing about myself, yeah. uh, and unfortunately, and uh, <laughs> but with poets, I find it so interesting because you can you play with that that mask and the eye, and and yeah. I just find that so interesting. And yeah. but it's hard, I think, for like you're saying, for readers because they don't always understand that mm -hmm. the eye is not necessarily the poet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how many times I became a great lover <laughs> but uh, you know <laughs> i remember my I, I don't know how many books i wrote of broken heart poetry yeah years ago like, yeah and i remember this one book i i, I printed um uh, i made the font really really thick so the reader would struggle with it just to, so they could feel my pain yeah <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I can become, yeah, I don't know how many times I've died. Yeah, probably every other poem, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you find that, though, that people people have trouble separating the I the eye? On, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to uh, ask you about using uh, the downtown east side as a setting mm -hmm. for your poems, because, of course, that came up in Shalom the Doctor as well, and mm -hmm. it's present in this collection as well. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about why including the downtown east side is so important for you in your collections yeah i think it's like um it's a very easy place for me to go i think when i'm writing um i can imagine the streets right at that moment and um imagine characters and and um and animals too being downtown i don't write about sasquatches being down there uh, but you know with a brown paper bag and 
I, I worked quite a bit down there. So it, it was easy to imagine what that life is like. I, I, you know, I mean, it's just such a struggle for those people down there, all, all the hum, human beings down there, not only just the, the drug addicts and the, the alcoholics, but even, you know, human beings trying to survive uh, in poverty. And yeah, I like, I, I, I tend to go there almost constantly now in my, my, my words, in my writing, the screenplay I'm working on now is, um, Half of it's set, set in a residential school, and then the other half is set downtown east side. Yeah, so having to write. Screenplays are different, you know. I, just, I don't know. But I think I'm getting the hang of it. <laughs> it's it's going to be like plays, though. They're so hard to produce, right? Like books of poetry. Yeah. I'm book solid with my publisher. I think I, he's got like 10 of my manuscripts of poetry, you know that I've written over COVID because we're isolated and I have no excuse, right? Well, I mean, that just means you can keep being nominated for the Griffin every year, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can up for a GG award too. I'm, I'm wondering how I would accept that. Because I'm not, I'm Quantlin, right? I'm Canadian. Um, but yeah, first I'm Quantlin. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I might, I might do like a Marlon Brando Oscar protest kind of thing. Yeah. Have someone accept it for me? And, no, I won't. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's like, um, even with this award, uh, last year and, and, and this year again, and with the Griffin, it, it just, it, it just helps so much. Like, it helps the poets. It helps me so much. It, it, um, opens doors and interviews and, um, it, it helps the book, you know, I mean, book sales are so hard for, uh, publishers for, poetry books to sell um, yeah so that, I enjoyed that that part of it yeah I was going to ask about um you like we were discussing writing about the downtown east side in that community and and you that you spend a lot of time working down there what's the response been from those folks to <laughs> to be included in your work in that way and and do you share your work with the community uh yeah yeah um Positive. I haven't been down there like through COVID as much. I used to be in contact with the elders at Carnegie Hall downtown, and I used to go. They invited me all the time, and yeah, I got, they're excellent elders and human beings, and uh, they became part of my stories too. The elders, and, you know, uh, but I don't. I don't write about individuals or you know what I mean. Yeah, names or anything like that, or uh, yeah. Just the kind of characters a part of me and a part of what I might imagine part of me would be like down there <laughs> if I was a, um, a drug addict or an alcoholic. Or, I am a drug addict and an alcoholic, but I mean, yeah, down there. But no, uh, positive, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am always, um, I always think like with books like yours and and the way you represent the characters that mm. they're important stories and writing to have because you know there's been representations of that community that aren't kind mm -hmm. and don't tr show the complexity and so I think yeah. I often um when I read your work I just think you know it, it must be so uh I'm not sure what the right word is but it must be nice for that community to be represented in that way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I try and create some positive uh, 
characters down there and uh, I write a lot about healers that pop in there. Yeah, and try and help and yeah. How the they 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 need that and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in talking about the the positive parts, because of course in writing about the downtown east side and also mm -hmm. colonization, there are those uh, those dark, those heavy, realistic mm -hmm. themes that we're dealing with in this country. Yeah. But also, what I I love so much about chatting with you and reading your work, and it was something that came up when I was talking to uh, Michelle Good as well, was the idea of laughter as a tool of decolonization. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what you thought of that idea. Yeah, I'm um, in my my normal life. I'm a I, I laugh all the time. I you know I make people laugh, and um, even when I do readings too, like when I'm not reading a poem, I tell stories that are funny about you know about me, and um, even on Zoom, um, to make people laugh, which is somewhat weird because they're just squares. Uh, but then you got, you know, I'm trying to focus. Oh, like, oh that lady's laughing. You know, oh, that guy, no, he's not laughing. Okay. And, um, but yeah, I use my, I use humor um, in my everyday just because, uh, you know, it, it, we're always taught that it's a hard life, but a good life. Um, and our people have been uh, just history shows that we've been through so much and, and what's going on now with the children and, and everything is just, you know, it's very easy to be overwhelmed. Not, you know, not only as a human being, but as a writer too. And um, I don't, I, I just try and like, I'll add little things in new pieces, you know, about kind of what's going on historically and what's gone on. And um, that, that sort of eases my need to you know speak about my people and myself. And I, I'm not very, I used to be, I was political in like 1990. <laughs> When after the Oka crisis, there's a group of Indians that we're all writers in Ottawa. There was Cattery Dam and Alan Deleary and uh, Armand Rufo and a few other guys. And our first meeting was um, we had to come up with an acronym for our, our group. And first one, because we're in Ottawa and it was like, OK, we call ourselves Oink, Ottawa in something. Yeah. But we came up with Wino, Writers Independent Native Organization. Yeah. They're, they're good, but that's as political as I, as I am. Um, but in my work, I can fire off a sentence and let them have it time to time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you still um, teaching storytelling? I know the last yeah. time we talked, you were still teaching. Yeah, I just taught uh, yesterday um, five youth mental health issues. Uh, yeah. And uh, read, read read some uh, I read my Sturgeon story to them the children's that's my next book that's coming out actually by Nightwood another children's book called the Sturgeon tale um, and I read that to them and then I got to, I always get them to write something for me and I'll just give them the title and a, a couple of rules and, and it's so interesting to, to hear young people and what they have to say and uh, so that I was teaching that and that was live too it was here at the culture center which is nice because uh, all teaching I've done so far has all been Zoom. What's funny about that is the, the kids don't understand that I can see them. <laughs> and, the, the, you know, the young punks in the back are goofing off and it's like, hey, the guy in the red hoodie, smarten up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so next year I hope to be teaching more uh, live. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love teaching. It's just from little guys to 
12, grade 12. Yeah. Yeah. So how many books do you have coming out next year? 15? Uh, two. Yeah. <laughs> two, two for sure. I know it'll be um, that children's story, the, uh, the sturgeon and uh, probably a, a new book of poetry. Thanks so much to Joseph for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find more information about Joseph Dandrand, as well as all of the shortlisted authors. There's also information about upcoming events, like our gala and viewing party, which is just a week away. At our gala, we'll be announcing the winners of the 2021 BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and you won't want to miss out on all of that. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Sarah Cassidy, whose book, Genius Jolene, is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.